Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30. Good to gather again. Let's pray together. Father, we do, uh, we declare that song, Lord, that we just sung. And Lord, we think of uh, all the different ways in which Christ has entered in and set, Lord, those of us that call upon his name for salvation, Lord, how he has set us free, certainly from the penalty of our sin and death. Lord, certainly from the power of sin, Lord, we have been set free to walk in the newness of life. Lord, we've been set free from ourselves and so that we might live, Lord, in service and uh, just with love, Lord, toward you and toward others. Lord, uh, you've changed our lives. And, and Father, we know that as we gather to consider the word of God, Lord, it, uh, you speak truth into the deep places of our hearts that certainly we may be challenged where we need to be challenged, where there's areas of our lives that, Lord, don't measure up to who you are or what you desire for us. And so, Lord, use your word this morning in that regard. Lord, we know that there are things that we just don't know that we need to be taught. We need to be directed and guided. And, Lord, we ask that your word would accomplish that purpose, certainly this morning. Lord, we pray for comfort for those here that uh, wonder if God even cares or if he loves them or if he hears them or he takes notice. Lord, we know that you do. And your word reveals that truth, and I pray you would accomplish that uh, this morning as well. So, Lord, we uh, present ourselves to receive from you, and we pray you would minister. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn, as I said, to chapter 30 of Proverbs. We're about halfway into chapter 30. We were looking at this uh, this oracle, this proverb of this fella Agur, or Agur, and again, not much is known about this guy. This is all we have of him in the scriptures is what is recorded for us here. Some people don't even think it is him. His word means gathered, and so some people think maybe this is just a whole bunch of proverbs that have been gathered together, you know, under that name Agur or whatever, but it seems that it's, it's speaking of a particular person, and we've noticed that he is a keenly observant person. He's a guy that uses his life's circumstances to be a quiet time, so to speak, for him, a devotional time for him, where he'll look at these things, he'll evaluate these things, he'll pray about these things, and then he'll move forward uh, with these particular things. So he's a keenly observant individual who would look at things and events and occurrences and then prayerfully and humbly draw conclusions from those observations. And so when we began the chapter, we saw that Agor began the same way that all people of humility begin, or excuse me, all people of wisdom begin. He begins with humility. And so he's first taking notice of his own deficiencies, if you will, as he would compare himself with other individuals. We saw in verse 2 that he called himself stupid. Again, something we wouldn't encourage people to call themselves, but essentially they're saying, I'm an unlearned man. 
I don't have all sorts of degrees and this and that and so on and so forth. And I'm an unlearned man. I do not have the understanding of a man. In verse 3, we see that he compares himself to the Lord. And he says there, I've not learned wisdom. That's the idea of heavenly wisdom. I have no knowledge of the Holy One. And so here's this man who starts this proverb of wisdom where all people of wisdom begin, and he begins with humility. He says in verses 5 and 6, the only semblance of knowledge that I do have is what the Lord has given me, what the Lord has revealed. He says there, every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found to be a liar. So he begins in this place of humility. Then we saw in verses 7, 8, and 9. Now, some of you were here last week, and you're like, yeah, we know. We did all this. All right, but we're, we're in the middle of this proverb, so we have to build up a little bit here. Verses 7, 8, and 9, he, he says a prayer. He utters a prayer. Only prayer in the book of Proverbs. He prays for two things. Verses, uh, verse 8, he says, essentially, well, he says there, remove far from me falsehood and lying. So his first prayer is that God would keep him from falsehood and deception, knowing how prone he is to receive falsehood and deception, both from outside the world and both from and inside of his own heart as well. And so he says, Lord, keep me from those things, much like the Lord said, Lord, deliver us from evil, keep us from temptation. He says then also, he goes on in that verse, and he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. His prayer there, again, is anything that might cause him to sin, he wants to be kept from. That's a great prayer, isn't it? Lord, anything that might cause me to sin, keep me from those particular things. We should be praying that prayer for ourselves. Well, quickly moving on, verses 10 through 14, he provides us with his observations about life, how we prayerfully consider those things. He, he talks in verse 10 about the one who slanders others and how that slander is going to come back upon himself. In verse 11, he talks about uh, the one who curses or dishonors their parents Verses 12 and 13, the person that is lifted up in pride and in self-righteousness. Verse 14, you can look at it there, the one who is harsh and cruel toward the weak and the needy. And in each case there, he didn't say it, but his point is this. He's praying this silent prayer that he would not fall into the same trap that those individuals have fallen into. It's so easy to become a slanderer of others. It's in there in the deep places of our hearts and it wants to work itself out and we can rationalize amongst ourselves that it needs to come out. Somebody needs to say something about this. And of course, we're the one that has to say it. And so it, we rationalize and it comes out. It's so easy for us to be proud, to be lifted up, to be that guy that's praying and says, well, at least I'm not like these sinners that are over here. That's not what Agor is doing. He's not saying, at least I'm not a slanderer or proud or arrogant or whatever. What he's saying is, Lord, I don't want to become a slanderer. And I know that I'm prone to do that. You see the difference? There's a huge difference there. And so he's a man that is marked by humility. And he, and he prays essentially, Lord, don't let me fall into that trap. Then in verse 15, he starts this poetic sort of uh, way of writing. And that's where you have the three things and then for four and verses 15 and 16, he says three things and then for four that are never satisfied. And his conclusion, again, you, you may recall, was, Lord, help me find my satisfaction in you, not in these other things. Verses 18 and 19, three things and then for four that are too wonderful to understand. They're just so beyond understanding 
Man can't grasp these things. And what many, I drew this point last time, what many people conclude is, well, if I can't understand it, well, then it can't be true. And what Agor does is, look, I can't, but God can. And so, Lord, even in those things, I'm going to try, I'm going to dig, I'm going to see if I can figure it out. But even though in those things I can't understand, I know you do. And so I'm just going to lay myself before you. I'm going to trust you with those things. You see how he's using every circumstance of life as a devotion time, essentially? That's so good and so valuable. Verse 21 and 23, he says, three things that cause the earth to tremble. You may recall I said, we might write it this way, three things that you look at and say, you know, that's just not right. That's not right. Why do the wicked prosper, Lord? You could stop them. It's just not right that they do. And so on and so forth. And so these things you look at and you might say, God, I would do it differently. And what some people say is because they would do it differently, God, you must be weak, you must be evil, you must be, you know, whatever. And so I'm not following a God like you that would, et cetera. But that's, that wasn't Agor's conclusion. Agor's conclusion was essentially this, Lord, I don't understand. I wouldn't do it this way, but I'm going to trust you anyway. And he, he submits himself to the will of the Lord. Just good stuff here. Now, we, we move on from there. As I said, he uses these as an opportunity to worship. And moment by moment, he sees it as a time of contemplation. He really does what the Apostle Paul tells us we should be doing. And you may recall these words. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, he tells us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And really there, he, he's doing both of those two things, all three of those things. He's rejoicing always, but he's praying without ceasing. He's having a moment-by-moment -moment conversation with the Lord. Now, of course, there are, it's important for us to take those times to just sort of put everything aside, so to speak, go into our prayer closet, our war room like that movie had a little while back, and to just pray about things, no distractions. But it's also important for us to nurture and develop this habit and this practice of praying without ceasing. So we're driving down the street, and we're praying. We're in the midst of our job, and we're communicating with the Lord. And we're, you know, we're involved with other things as well, but there's this constant interaction that is going on with the Lord. We're observing things, we're bringing them to the Lord, and we're hearing his thoughts on those particular matters. That's what Agur is doing, and so we learn his lesson. Now, let's go on to verse 24. That's where we pick up today, because we left off there last time. And again, he uses this three and then four formula. But notice here, he cuts to the chase. He just says, there's four things. Says, Let me just get to the point on this one. He says, four things on earth are small, but they're exceedingly wise. The ants are a people, not strong, and yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people, not mighty, and yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, Yet all of them march in rank. And the lizard, you can take in your hands. I wouldn't, but some people could. Um, and yet, it's found in the king's palace. So this time, the thing that catches his attention are small yet, as he says, exceedingly wise creatures of God's creation. The ant, the rock badger, the locust, and the lizard. Now, some of your versions there might say spiders and I wouldn't touch them either uh, to draw the, the, the point. The word there is creepy things. And of course, both lizards and spiders are creepy. 
And so that's how you sort of you get that distinction there. The, the idea is it can climb the walls and it can kind of hang on to a wall and so on. And both lizards and spiders do that. And so there is some leeway there in the interpretation. That's why different versions are slightly off there. But all small, in some cases very, very small, and yet uh, Agor here takes notice of their wisdom and he admires them for their wisdom. So the ant. The ant who works in the summertime to store up for the winter. That's good wisdom, isn't it? To, yeah, well, yeah. To store up, you know, in the days that you're able to for the future. Human beings don't do that. And yet somewhere in some class, ants sat down and were taught that valuable lesson and took it in. You see? So how did they do that? You know, these small little creatures... They know to store up for the winter. The rock badger. Now, the rock badger has a limited ability to dig. It has to do with the way their back legs are a little bit bigger than their front legs and things like that. And so a typical badger would be able to kind of dig into the ground, burrow a little hole there, and protect itself from those animals that are bigger but can't get into that smaller hole. But here, this rock badger does not have the ability to burrow into these holes. And so what's it going to just sit out there? Oh, well. You know, it's just luck of my draw that, you know, I'm sitting duck for these animals to come after me. Well, the reality is it knows that, and so it goes to plan B. And it goes to the rocks, it goes into the hills and the mountains, and it finds those little crevices, and it makes its way into those. And so we see this little fella here for its wisdom, figuring out another way to protect itself from its predators, the locust. I don't know much about locusts, quite frankly. I don't know how anybody does other than just observing them in mass. But they tell us, somebody somewhere knows, has gotten into the mind of the locust, and they know that locusts don't have a particular leader. There's no leader that barks out instructions, this is what we're doing, who's with me? You know, and gives a new Rockne speech or something like that. They just do what they do. And somehow they can clear entire fields because they just do what they do. No leader barking out instructions, and yet as they work in unison, they're able to accomplish a great task. And then finally, the creeping thing, the lizard, the spider, small and insignificant, and yet somehow able to make, to make his way into the inner rooms of the palaces. Now, most of us here, we don't have lizards crawling around in our house unless we want them to. We have a pet lizard that lives in the little glass thing or whatever. But you go to some other countries in the world, we go down to Belize and stuff like that, and right there in the room with you are these lizards, you know, on the wall. And I'm like going to the front desk, you know, we have a problem, you know. There's creatures in my room or whatever. And I'm like, oh, don't worry about it, they're everywhere. Or whatever. Well, I am going to worry about it. And so these small and significant, you try to get into the inner room of a palace and see how that goes for you. You're gonna be taken down and thrown in jail or whatever. And yet these lizards, they can just walk in and hang on the wall or whatever into the inner room. How do they do that? How do they take their seemingly insignificant life and yet find themselves in the highest places of society? And again, as I said, no human has taught these little creatures this wisdom. And yet somehow they know and Agor, by observing these small yet exceedingly wise creatures, he's essentially saying, I want to be more like these creatures. I want to be more diligent, which is the theme of Proverbs, right? I want to, yes? Yeah, you've been here. We've been a long time. We've been studying it. All righty. I want to be more diligent in the times of plenty 
to prepare for the times of scarcity. That's what the ant does, and I want to be more diligent like him. I want to realize my limitations and use my available resources around me to guard and to protect me. That's a great word of wisdom, isn't it? Know my weaknesses, know my limitations, and set up appropriate boundaries to protect me. Well, I'm, I'm strong, I'm tough, I can handle anything. Really? You really can, you fool? So, no offense. <laughs> Why would we be offended? Yeah, but think about it. If you know that this is a stumbling block for you, why play with it? Get yourself out of there. And the rock badger realizes that. So that's wisdom you can learn from this little animal here. The next fellow, the locust there. How, how important would it be, how effective would it be if a group of us realized individually we can't accomplish much, but collectively, working in the unity of the Holy Spirit, what we might be able to accomplish together. The locust has realized that. And you have the creeping thing, who entrust, where we entrust ourselves to the Lord and say, Lord, you know what? You can accomplish remarkable things through the weak things, through the seemingly insignificant things. And you look through the scripture, and you see it's just these average people that committed themselves to the Lord walked by faith, and God accomplished amazing things through them. God can accomplish amazing things through us. One of the reasons why I love reading the book Harvest that was put out uh, probably about 25, 30 years ago is it's the story, uh, it's like a Calvary Chapel movement story, and it's a story of just regular guys who got saved, wanted to win people to the Lord, and made themselves available, and what God did through those people. And that's what God can do through every one of us here. As we make ourselves available, listen, as we make ourselves available for God to use, a person's eternity can be changed because we faithfully spoke the word of truth into that person's life. You have the ability, because of the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, to step out in faith, speak a word of truth, and a person's eternity can be changed. And we all know that as one person and another person and another person, you, if you're influential in winning one person to the Lord, and as that person begins to, begins to grow and to walk with the Lord, and they grow as a disciple, that person's family inevitably is going to be impacted. And when that person's family is impacted, those people's places of work are going to be impacted. And their community is going to be impacted, all because you stepped out and told somebody the gospel of Jesus Christ and faithfully ministered to that person's life. Much like here, this lizard. You could have access, if you will, to accomplish amazing things, king's palaces, and so on. And so here you have our friend, Agor. He's keenly observant. Every opportunity is a learning opportunity, even when he looks at ants and badgers and lizards and locusts. Maybe the next time you have a little ant infestation in your home, before you... We do, I, I don't, I'm sure you do from time to time. Before you get like the raid, just watch them for a little bit, all right? Say who? Yeah, yeah, before you destroy them, all right? Just take a moment and watch them, all right? Sound good? They can live outside of my house, all right? That's the only thing I'm asking for is out there. All right, so he is observant, keenly observant. No wonder he's considered one of the wise men. Here we are 3,000 years later, maybe, 2,500 at least, and we're reading his words. 
All because he was a man that was observant. Now he goes on in verses 29 and 31. And this is four more things that catch his attention and wonder. All right, we're seeing this about the guy, verse 29. He says, three things are stately in their tread, in their walk. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is the mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. So we, we've seen him look at all these other things that catch his attention. Here now are four things that are stately and majestic, that they're able to rise to the highest of heights. The lion, who even today we call the king of the beast, the strutting rooster. Now your version might look there. I can just kind of look at eyes to see who has a different version. Your version might say the greyhound, the strutting rooster or the greyhound. We'll talk about the reason for that discrepancy. The he-goat and then the king, the human variety king. These are things that are stately and majestic. They rise to the highest of heights here. And each one, with each one, you have a lesson that can be learned. The lion for his courage. If only we had more courage to walk as, where God would have us to walk. The strutting rooster or the greyhound there, as some versions there, it's with their swiftness and their speed, they continue on until they've reached their goal. And again, both the strutting rooster, who the idea is victorious, I caught what I wanted to catch, the greyhound, swiftness and speed. The he-goat refuses to settle in the low valleys, and so will instead make his dwelling place at the top there of the hill or their mountain. Some might call them stubbornly persistent. I think sometimes we need to be a little more stubbornly persistent in our lives. And finally, the king, who with an army can go forth and can conquer. And so you take those four ideas, and if only each of us would have a little more courage, a little more stubborn persistence to ascend to the highest of heights and secure victory. Our friend Agor looking at them, and he said, look, I see these traits in these four beings. I want those traits in myself as well. Lord, cause me to be more courage, uh, courageous. Lord, when I need to be persistent, cause me to even be stubbornly persistent in those particular things and so on and so forth. And now final words of Agor, verse 32, he says, if you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. Now, he began the chapter talking about, see if you remember, it's a long time ago. I reviewed it today. Come on! Yeah, he said, I'm stupid. He began with humility. He ends now with this idea of self-exhortation, or excuse me, exaltation. And he has an exhortation both to himself and to his readers, and that is an exhortation towards self-judgment. So he's already demonstrated this idea that he is walking in humility. It's an expression of personal humility. I don't measure up to other people. I don't measure up certainly to the Lord. Anything I do know is because he revealed these things to me. So he begins in humility. Now he speaks a word to both himself and to others for those times where he might slip into pride and self-exaltation. So you can be a person who people would look at and say, you know, that person's life is marked by humility. And yet you can have a moment where pride enters in, correct? 
All right, and so you can be generally a person that is walking in humility. You rightly think about yourself, certainly in your relationship to the Lord. And yet, even with that being your, nat- your tendency or who you are, your characteristic, self-exaltation can come in. And so he says here, look, if you've been foolish, let's say you're not humble at all. Or let's say you have been and yet you have a moment. He says, if you've been foolish exalting yourself, or if you've been devising evil, he says, put your hand on your mouth. You think of the disciples who would say to, amongst themselves, they would have an argument as to which of them was the greatest of the disciples. That seems like a moment of pride, doesn't it? That seems like I imagine something each one of them would have wished. They didn't have that conversation or it hadn't been recorded. It's a little embarrassing. If it were us in that, but the, yeah, that was a bad day for me. I can't believe I was having that argument with the Lord just around the corner, you know, when he heard us and so on. And so what our friend Agor here says, look, if you have a moment of self-exaltation, put your hand over your mouth. Watch what you say. Be careful what you say. Because what is going to come out of your mouth is what is going on in your heart. And if you let that come out of your mouth and you begin asking which of us is the greatest of the disciples... You're only going to embarrass yourself in that instance there. So if you are walking in humility, good for you. Keep walking in humility. And when you sense that you, you know what, I'm not in humility right now, be careful what you say, lest it reveal what's really going on. Now he goes on, he gives us a second word of exhortation. You can see that there in verse 33. He says, for pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. This time speaking to the issue of stirring up trouble. I think all of us know people, maybe sometimes we have been that person. If you want trouble, you can pretty much find trouble, right? And you can stir it up pretty quickly. If we want to fight, it's not too hard either to find one or to create one. And Agor, he touches on that. Because when, if a person is in like a mood, not like oh, you're in a mood today. You've heard people say things like that. Or you come across somebody that is in a mood, then you need to get yourself out of there. You need to drop that conversation. You need to move on to something else. Because if you're in a mood or somebody else is in a mood, now is not the time, he uses the word press, now is not the time to press the issue. But we want to. Oh, I'm going to make sure they understand. Somebody come in here looking at me that way, saying what they said with that tone or whatever. I'm going to press the issue right now. Not a good idea. Because as you see here, he gives a bunch of examples. Pressing milk produces curds. Pressing the nose produces blood. Pressing anger produces strife. You press the issue with somebody that is in a mood, it's very likely somebody's going to end up with a bloody nose. And that's certainly not good. And so Agor's lesson there is just walk away. And so there are times we're in a mood. There are times people we love are in a mood. Now that's not the time to deal with it. Now's the time to sort of get yourself out of there, come back to it later. Hey, earlier, when they're in a good frame of mind. Hey, earlier when, you know, you said that particular thing. That was really hurtful to me. That's the time to talk about it. Not in the midst of it, because in the midst of it, you're pressing and pretty soon someone's going to get a bloody nose. Okay? Sound good? That's chapter 30. That's our friend Agor. How many of you knew anything about Agor before last week? I didn't either. You did? Well, he's very smart. But I didn't know anything about Agor. 
and I, you know, I'm reading this guy, and I'm like, I love this guy. This guy's a great dude. And so, Agor. Now we move on. Now we're going to be introduced to, normally we wouldn't go into chapter 31 after doing 30, but we're going to go into there. Today we're going to look at this fella, King Lemuel. And then when we come back together next week, as the Lord allows, we'll finish up chapter 31 uh, together. So we'll do about half of the chapter today. We're learning about this guy, Lemuel. Now, Lemuel was a young prince, and these words of wisdom were taught to him by his loving mother, likely when he was just a young kid. So he's not a king, but he will one day be a king. His dad, apparently, is a king. And somewhere in the latter years of his life, when he, he is this king, he puts these words of wisdom down onto paper, if you will so that people can learn the lessons that he had learned so many years earlier. He probably learned these lessons 20 years, 30 years earlier, maybe 40 years earlier when he became king, his dad passed off the scene. And yet he still remembers these things that his mom had taught him. And just like Agor, we don't know much about King Lemuel. There's no record of a King Lemuel in the lines of the kings of Israel or in the lines of the kings of Judah. So we have no record of, of one of those men being King Lemuel. There's no records of kings in the surrounding nations around Israel. And so the possibility is, well, maybe a Jewish woman was married into the, the kingly line of a neighboring nation, and so she passed on those things. To, but there's no record of a King Lemuel in any of the neighboring nations. Now, we don't have as... as uh, high a quality of the records of surrounding nations as we do of Israel. Um, so it's possible they missed one. And so we don't know much about this guy, whether he was a, a Jewish fellow, whether he was a proselyte, if you will, his mom was Jewish, uh, and, certain, uh, and so on. His name means, though, dedicated to God. His name means belonging to God. And so it's possible, and this is what Jewish tradition tends to teach, it's possible that Lemuel is sort of a nickname for him, that his mom uh, calls him by this little nickname of your, my little belonging to God, come here. You know, or my little dedicated to the Lord, you know, come give your mother a hug. or whatever. So it's possible it's this cute little pet name. And so traditional Jewish understanding is that Lemuel is Solomon that it's the pet name that his mom referred to him. Now, many of you probably know Solomon's mom is, anyone know? It's Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is introduced to us initially in the pages of Scripture in sort of a dark story there. You know, and so she's this, if this is the case, then we see this woman who had sort of this, this rough period here as far as morality and walking with the Lord and so on. And yet here she is in life, pouring truth into her son's life. And so if this is indeed the story of Lemuel, or excuse me, Solomon and Bathsheba, then we see, you know what? The Lord can change anybody and cause them to be effective for the Lord. Sometimes we have past, a lot of us do. And we wonder, you know, how am I ever gonna be able to speak into my kid's life if they knew what I did when I was young or these things? But, you know, that's an opportunity to talk about the grace of God, the mercy of God, how God can change us, how I've seen now as he's opened up my heart, revealed truth into my life, how I can see the error of my ways. Son, don't do what I did, which is very much what uh, Solomon was trying to teach his son in the earlier chapters 
of this particular book. So we don't know for certain if this is Solomon here, but what we do see in the opening verses of this chapter, this is a wise and loving mother who is trying to help her son steer clear of the sins that he would be tempted to give into. Again, royal family, this kid is going to one day rise up to be the king of his little country, unless a neighboring nation comes in and conquers him. And so she knows the, the threats that will come against him, the moral dangers that will come against him, the responsibilities that he will have as a king. And she sees it as her purpose and obligation to pour into his life, to equip him and prepare him for those particular days. Pretty good stuff, yes? And so we see here, verse 2, she says, What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Now, when I first read that, I read it much like the mom of a toddler, and I'm sure, and dads of toddlers. Many times we say to our little kids, What are you doing? Why would you do that? Why would you throw my watch into the toilet? You know, why would you do that? There, there's an old book. I have a picture of it here. I'm not sure. I don't think we put it up here. Do you know this book, everybody? Some of you do. This is the, you want to cry when you put your kid to bed? Read this particular book. It's a beautiful book. It's called Love You Forever. And it's about this, this mom that's just trying to deal with her toddler who flushes her, his, her watch down the toilet and the toilet paper everywhere or whatever, but she just takes that little boy in her arms each time. My wife's probably crying right now. Uh, she takes that little boy in her arms and she rocks him, and I love you forever, I love you for always, as long as you're with me, my baby you'll be, or something like that, uh, over and over. And we've read this book probably to our kids 200 times, uh, or whatever. And it's a great story. You can look it up if you really are that uh, moved uh, by it here. And so, when I first read this verse, verse 2, that's what I was thinking. That here's a mom of a toddler, like, what are you doing? You know, what am I going to do with you? But the reality is, I don't think that's where she's going. I think rather where she is going is she's very carefully, prayerfully trying to figure out, son, what do you need from me? What words of wisdom do you need me to communicate to you? Every kid is different. And so there are different things we're going to say. There's this general stuff we're going to say to our kids, but there's different things. And we see the tendencies of certain children, and we say, you know what? You are prone to go in this direction. And so she sees that. She observes that. She's praying about that. That's what she is going to speak into. She knows his future is that he's going to be a king. What does he need to know then in preparation for that? What can she pour into his life now that it's second nature to him? Of course I wouldn't do it any other way because my entire life I have been learning this important lesson. So she's prayerful about all these things. What words of wisdom should I pass on? And her each question, it expresses her deep concern that she would give the counsel, just the counsel that is needed to her son. And I think this is so important because so often, and there's a message that our world communicates, that the role of a mom is not that significant in our society. It's tremendously significant in our society. Now, so is the role of a dad, of course. But the role of a mom or dad, so often there's this idea that, you know what, yeah, you got to get your kids, just make sure they survive and, and all that kind of stuff, and then they can go off to school. But you got to do something for yourself. you got to go make a name for yourself. 
We're called to pour into the lives of our children. It doesn't mean you can't have a job outside of the home and a career and all these sorts of things, but we're called to pour into the lives of our children. And she recognizes that. And she sees it as a high calling from God. I've said to you before that as your pastor of this particular church, I am going to answer for how I led this congregation. Moms and dads are going to answer for how they led their children. It's a high calling to be a mom or a dad. And so she recognizes it as such, and she wants to make sure she can speak the exact God-inspired word into her son's life. And so she's praying about these things. What should I say to you, my son? What are you doing, my son? What do you need to hear from me? She wants the mind of the Lord. And you notice also, she begins here in a very creative way, almost poetic way, of sort of this progress, progression of relationship. And so she begins with by calling him her son. I'm the one who's been making you PB&J every day. I'm the one that's up every morning that makes sure you have your cereal. And she, you know, I'm your mom. But then she, she goes back even further and she says, you were the one that was in my womb and you were the one kicking me and I was dealing with it. And you were the one waking me up at night and I was throwing up. And it was you, you know, or whatever, you know. But you were there in my womb. When I ate, I was feeding you. I don't know how it all works, but somehow you were getting sustenance from me. And so on and so forth. And so she goes from, you're the kid I'm raising every day, to the kid that I carried. And then she goes back another step, and she says that you are the son of my vows. Very much like, no doubt, Hannah, who you recall in 1 Samuel somewhere there, who is praying for a child, unable to conceive for all of those years, and she's praying, Lord, give me a child, give me a child. If you give me a child, I'll turn him back over to you. What's Lemuel mean again? Dedicated. It means dedicated to God, belonging to God. It seems that she prayed a prayer just like Hannah. We have Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 1. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me, don't forget me, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to you. All the days of his life, no razor shall touch his head. Oh, that Nazarite vow. It seems that's what Lemuel's mother is doing. She's praying that the Lord... So that means, in, in many senses, she knew this child before he was even conceived within her. She was praying for this child and dreaming about what this child would be. She, and so you, you take all that, she's saying, look, I love you like nobody will ever love you. And nobody has ever loved you. Son, I want the best for you. And so I'm going to give you these words of wisdom. I have no ulterior motive. I don't want the best for you. For, so everyone says, well, it's all because of his mom. Let's bring her in. You know, or whatever. That's not her motive. I want the best for you. Because I've loved you even before you were conceived within me. And so each statement, really, it takes the relationship deeper and deeper and deeper. And so she's going to present her son with two, initially, two God-inspired cautions. Cautions against, verse 3, uncleanness. We'll talk about it. And in verses 4 and 5, cautions against drunkenness. As somebody, as one commentator I read said, she cautions him against women and wine. It's kind of odd to like a four-year-old or whatever. Son, watch yourself with women and wine. You know, what? You know, whatever. But as he's growing, no doubt. She's continuing to speak these things into her life. And she warns her son to avoid a life that is given to sensual lust 
and the excessive use of wine and strong drink. She's saying to her son, look, if you're going to grow to be a great man and a great king, then you first need to learn to govern yourself because you're going to be drawn toward sensual lust. You're going to be drawn toward excessive drink, she says to him. You're the king. You're going to be the king. And, you know, no, no American democracy and things like that where there's checks and balances. You're going to be the king. If you want women, you can have women. If you want strong drink and parties and feasts, you can have those things. But, son, if you're going to be a great man and a great king, you need to learn first to govern yourself. And so she says in verse 3, Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. The sense there is this idea of excessive sexual interest in women. Now notice plural, women. Not a woman, not a wife. That's a perfectly fine thing for him to have. But this excessive sexual interest in women, plural, is going to waste his strength. There's a warning here that she gives to us, much like Solomon gave to his son early on in the book of Proverbs, chapter 5, a little bit of chapter 6, and chapter 7. But there's this warning against this unhealthy obsession with sex, which we know has its proper place in a person's life. Hebrews tells us that. But that this unhealthy obsession with sex, it should not be made into his all-consuming reason for living. She warns her son of this. Now, of course, that same advice could be given to a young woman to guard herself from giving her strength to men. But the fact is you have a mom speaking to a son, and so we have these words expressed in this way, don't give your strength to women. But those same lessons certainly would apply to a young girl as well. Both men and women need to remain faithful to God in regard to sex. Or we see here that they will give away their strength. And this idea of strength, it speaks of, the, of spiritual strength, certainly. Sexual sin impacts your relationship with God and other people. Sexual sin impacts your relationship with God and other people. And this idea of strength also speaks, and it includes, a person's overall self-control. You give in to those particular areas, you're going to likely give in to a lot of other areas as well. It speaks about a person's self-respect. As a person has given themselves to those things and then needs to hide those things. Then has to wonder, do they know? When somebody looks at them and says, hey man, how you doing? Oh man, they know. And so now they begin to shrink just a little bit smaller. Sexual indiscretion and sin can also affect the person's standing within society. And all of these things are given away because as a young man, this man did not first learn to control himself. And so she speaks this then into her life. Now, if we are speaking about Lemuel as being Solomon, well, many of us know because we're familiar with the scriptures, this is a lesson that Solomon did not, at least initially, did not take to heart. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, it was because he had given himself to women that his kingdom was destroyed. Again, 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 and 10. He had given himself, and we know that he had 700, wives, 700 concubines, 300 wives, or vice versa, whatever. And he had given himself to there, and it destroyed his kingdom. And it led his heart away from the things of the Lord. Think about King David, who gave himself to sexual sin and soon spiraled into all manner of sin. 
including conspiracy and murder. We read his story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Sexual sin destroyed his kingdom. And so Lemuel's mother here warns him. She warns each one of us against something so powerful that it destroys kings, even the greatest of kings. Solomon is said to be one of the greatest of kings in the history of the world. And yet this thing took him down. Now, I was thinking about this. If she had warned him to guard against Trojan horses, you know, Trojan horses, you know, we're going to give you this big prize or thing or whatever, and inside are hidden all of the enemy armies. If that was her warning, we'd all look at that and be like, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm going to be careful. Somebody comes to my palace with a horse, you know, that is 40 foot tall, I'll be careful. Today in our day, if she warned against internet hackers, financial spy bots that are out there, make sure you never log in when you're on a guest computer or whatever because they can get your stuff. If she had warned against those things, almost all of us would be like, all right, thank you. I needed to know that. But a lot of times we hear this warning about sexual sin, and we're like, well, that, that, that does it. Yeah, different time, different age. I'll be okay. It doesn't apply to me. She said this will destroy kings. We should take heed and avoid being taken down. Every one of us can be taken down by that sin. She's a woman who knows what she's talking about. If it can take down kings, it can take down you and I. We'd be wise to learn. Let's go on, verse 4. i got to take, oh my gosh. <laughs> verse 4 says, It's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. If you want to be in leadership in any way, then it is not for you to be given to wine or strong drink. Wine or strong drink, really any substance that can affect your mental state or that can hinder your ability to rule fairly, justly, and properly. Pro properly. If you're in leadership in any way, it is not for you to be given to those things because the responsibility of a king or of a leader of some sorts are so great that it is essential that that person not be impaired in their judgment or their abilities in any way. I couldn't help but, but think of this scenario. So let's say, you know, the president or whatever had a rough week. Oh, boy, it's been a tough week. And so it's Friday night, and I'm just going gonna to put a few back and, you know, whatever, and get themselves drunk. And then let's say that particular Friday evening, somebody, foreign nation, attacks us. And so-and-so is sleeping in the other room there. Hey, get up. What? What's going on? Or whatever. No, you can't. You do not have... That's my drunk. Uh, was that good? You, know, you do not have the luxury to go down there. You're a leader. You're a king. And it's essential that your judgments never be impaired or your abilities never be impaired in any way. And that's not just true for kings, it's true for leaders of any type, especially leaders in God, among God's people. And so if a person wants to lead others well, just like with the other scenario, they must first learn to lead themselves well, or must first learn to govern themselves. And so giving themselves to alcohol, the idea there is drunkenness, or any mind-altering substance, it's evidence that the person has not learned to govern themselves well yet. And so she speaks this word of truth into her son. Now she goes on, she says, look, give strong drink to the one who is perishing. 
and wine to those who are in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. It's not for kings to drink wine and straw drink. Perhaps for the one who is perishing. That's the idea of the one that is a condemned criminal. They tell us that this is the idea when Jesus was on the cross and they raised you know, the sponge there with wine on it, that this is where it comes from. That it was sort of this act of mercy to dole the pain of the one that was being executed and, and that they would do so. So historians point to that as such, and we see that in Mark chapter 15. She says, give to the condemned criminal. And give it to the one that is in bitter distress. Now that might be exemplified by the Apostle Paul, his admonition to his protege Timothy, who had these frequent stomach ailments, likely from uh, unpurified water, and so he says to Timothy, look, don't just drink water alone any longer, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments to sort of that it would just fight away at that bacteria that keeps getting in there. And so this idea perhaps there of distress. Here's the point, though. The point is this, that those instances may be appropriate. And folks in those circumstances, yeah, maybe they should drink a little wine for their frequent ailments and so on. But not for you, Lemuel. You're the king. It's not for you, because a king's mind needs to be clear and prepared to proper function, uh, properly function. And a king, as I said earlier, does not have the luxury to partake of those things and possibly distort or pervert justice. In those other cases, little consequences for those individuals to consume wine in those, those instances there, but potentially huge uh, consequences for the king. And so she warns him of such. Now that's what not to do. Those two verses, verses or five verses. Verses eight and nine, this is what you need to do. And so she says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And so she's warned her son to keep from certain dangers, wine and women. And now she proceeds to tell him the things that he should give himself to. And I couldn't help but be reminded here of the Apostle, Paul, Apostle Paul's admonition. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, put off the old man, put on the new. I'm going to read it to you. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and in holiness. And in our walks with Jesus Christ, we know this. There are old things that we will put off, and there are new things that we will put on. You think of it like a garment. Many of us were going to go home. We, we dressed up a little to come here to Calvary. Some of you I can see didn't. But many of us here, I'm just kidding. You all look excellent this morning. But most of us are going to go home, and we're either going to put on our pajamas, we're going to put on a pair of shorts, or whatever it may be, and we're going to get comfortable. We're going to take off the one garment, we're going to put on another. And that's what Paul says, put off the old man, put on the new here. And so we know in our lives, there are places, now that we're following Jesus, there are places we're no longer going to go. And there are new places that we will go. There are things that we will no longer say. And there are other things that we will now begin to say. There's all sorts of changes that have occurred in us. We put off the old man, we put on the new. Now, she's already told her son, look, put off these things. Put off drunkenness. It's not fitting for you. Put off giving yourself to sensual desires. 
Learn to govern yourself, she says to him. And now here she's telling him, put on these things, righteousness and justice. I'll read it again. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. In so many words, she says to him, look, when you become king, you must use your power for good. When you become king, you must use your power for good. Not for your good, but for the people that you're ruling's good. And no doubt, as you pour yourself into the good of the people you're ruling, it'll come back and it'll be a benefit to you as well. Specifically, she says this, be the voice of those that don't have a voice. She says, open your mouth for the mute. She says further on in verse 8, protect the rights of those that are poor, that really can't rise up and protect their own rights because they don't have the legal fees or the voice or the influence or the ability and so on. She says in verse 9, judge righteously and without regard to prejudice, she says there. Now, I find it interesting that this woman's sole political concern you think of the advice you can give someone. Son, when you become king, you need to build yourself a strong military. You need to be ready so that no one will mess with you. And if you need to go, you can. She doesn't say that. She doesn't say, son, you need to develop a strong economy so that things are humming along and everyone's going to love you and that the treasury has everything it needs for everything that it might need. She doesn't say, son, you need to squash all of your political opponents. If anyone rises up, you need to step on them right away. She doesn't address those issues. What she points to is righteousness and justice. She says, son, you give yourself to those things. That's her chief concern. That's what prayerfully she feels the Lord is leading her to pour into her son. Son, give yourself to justice and righteousness. From a young age, she's telling her son, you must do good with your power. And you must administer justice with care, courage, and compassion, that in all these matters, every matter that comes before him, that he would judge righteously, that he wouldn't pervert justice for this person because of what criteria this person meets. Lemuel's mother, she knows that what Lemuel will hopefully, Lemuel will hopefully come to know. And she knows that being a leader means, look, you're gonna have position and power someday. How are you going to use that position and that power? Are you going to use it to indulge yourself with women and wine? Or will you use it to protect and benefit those that you lead fairly, equitably, righteously? It's a high calling to be a leader. Just as we saw with uh, earlier in the chapter here, this idea, it's a high calling to be a mom or a dad. And Lemuel was taught this lesson from her mom, my prayer for each of us is that we would, by God's grace, learn this lesson for each of ourselves. All right, the lesson of Agur, the lesson there of Lemuel's mom. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. Father, we know that it exposes some things in us at times, and we pray that, as I earlier prayed, you would have done just that this morning. And so, Father, I pray that as your spirit was ministering, Lord, through these words, Lord, if you put your finger on just different areas of our lives, Lord, that we would respond today. Lord, if you've challenged us in certain areas about maybe changes that we need to make, that we would follow through with that. Lord, if you've taught us some things we never knew before, 
Lord, that we would dig into those things, making them a part of our lives, walking in them. And so, Lord, thank you for, again for Agor and his, just his keen observation, the, the example that he has set for us to go step by step through life as if it were a quiet time in communication with you. Lord, what would you have me to learn from this? And Lord, we thank you for Lemuel's mom, just a faithful woman pouring into the life of her son for his own good. And Lord, I pray for each one of us that, that have people in our lives that are looking to us for guidance and direction. Lord, we desire to be faithful, prayerful and faithful. And so bless us, Lord, even as we seek to be a blessing to others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.